All right. Hello, everyone. How we doing? Wow, we have no one here. Okay. Um, very few people. So, I guess we'll wait a second to see if more people can come on. Um, did anybody have trouble signing in? No, not no. really, no. Oh, okay. I just clicked the link and it went straight here. All right. So last time we had this few people, it was because the the link had formatted strangely. Um, but yeah, we'll take a minute as we are missing two-thirds of the class. Um, but I guess while we're waiting, uh, any questions about anything? I, I know we're at kind of a bit of a lull. You've handed in the assignment and now... Um, we're going to be starting to get ready for the next one, which isn't due for another three weeks or so. Um, but any questions about that or about um, plans for the next few weeks? Okay. Fine. We'll, we'll wait. Let's give it another maybe two minutes. And then we'll start talking about uh, about this. So we'll give it about another minute, and then we'll we'll get into it. I mean, I guess we could we could start off and just talking. What did you guys think of the play? <laughs> Any responses to it? Probably easier to read than anything we've done yet. I imagine. Oh yeah, as <laughs> uh, as things get as we get into more modern stuff, it's always going to be easier to read because you know it's not it's in English we recognize instead of old English or even different languages mm -hmm. or rough translations of different languages. So it's just uh, as things get newer, it's always easier to read mm -hmm. with our modern brains. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's pretty close to us. I mean, it's the it's also our only American play we're doing, so we're culturally closer to to us as well. Um, I think we've spent, uh, whew, I think we've been in eleven different countries in this class. So you know, there's a there's a lot of cultural whiplash in, in a class like this, um, and so this is this is a little closer to home. Um, it, it's also designed to be a little more straightforward and uh, and exciting. Um, you know, it's different from Wojtek in that sense, right? Wojtek is is doing something probably far more complicated, or at least in a more complicated way. And the first priority of this play seems to be getting you to go to the theater to actually buy the ticket, right? This is like the uh, this is the Marvel movie of the plays we're going to read, that equivalent. Um, and this play made a lot of money for its writer. And that's something when we talk about melodrama that we're going to talk about today and this week, uh, one of the, the nice things, or the interesting things anyway, about melodrama is um, these plays make money. <laughs> You know, the, the the success of a melodrama can often be measured in how much money it makes as opposed to, um, you know, how many years after the playwright died was this thing finally performed. <laughs> so that, that's another big change is um, is there's a, a sort of market consciousness that these writers have. 
Any other responses to, to this play? To maybe the plot or any of its particulars? Okay. That's fine. So let's let's get into it and we'll talk about what we're gonna do today. Um, we're five minutes over. We have a little less than half the class, uh, but we'll can't wait all day. So we will work with that. Um, so in the, the next few weeks, these last three weeks of actually us talking, we're going to be covering this play, um, Ibsen, and then Chekhov. And I don't know if anybody here has done Ibsen or Chekhov, probably A Doll's House. Um, a Doll House, rather. That's, that is that uh, is the one people are most likely to have read, I think, of of the, the sort of writers we're looking at for these last three weeks of class. Um, however, uh, the, the realism that you're going to see in things like Ibsen, and especially Chekhov, who is... Uh, quite devoted to this new avant-garde of realism. Um, a lot of it is coming and connected to the melodrama and the melodrama tradition as it is, or it'd probably be better to talk about it as a phenomenon, um, than, than would first appear. Um, I don't, has anybody read Dollhouse or, um, or anything by Chekhov? Dramatically by Chekhov. No. Okay. <laughs> so I, I, you will speak for the class, Chuck. Um, what you're going to see with with those works is the the kind of devotion to uh, to a realistic thing, uh, a realistic play, what or a realistic film. Um, Chekhov, uh, his works were directed in part by Konstantin Stanislavski, who develops a kind of acting technique that is devoted to the establishment of real emotion on the stage. That His work gets translated, comes over to America, and inspires uh, the, the method system, method actors. And the, the, you know, the first generation of method acting you know, um, uh, the first generation of method actors, a lot of them become teachers. And those teachers um, um, begin teaching people like uh, Marlon Brando, like um, uh, uh, James Dean. Uh, and then the next generation after that is, you know, De Niro and Pacino and, and all them. Um, and so this thing, this, this realism which was never really concerned before. People talked about realism, um, but no one was ever necessarily considering the stage a place where uh, the performer was exactly replicating human emotion. There was always this kind of, um, there was this always kind of performative affect to, to the things the performers were doing as far as we know, uh, even though they might call this realism or realistic. Um, and what we're going to begin to see this week is the movement towards verisimilitude, towards what you see on stage being closer to what you see in real life. And in this sense, it's not actually going to be coming from the performers, which we'll see definitely when we get to check off and we do uh, Vanya on 42nd Street, the, the film version of, of Uncle Vanya. Um, but you start to see it in the production, in things the production values, um, realistic sets, realistic stage violence, you know, um, realistic spectacle. And ironically enough, it's this emphasis on realism in the spectacle uh, connected to a very unrealistic plot with um, very broadly and stereotypically drawn characters that connects to certain avant-garde artistic movements in Central and Eastern Europe, which manifest as realism, and then gets cycled back into America and becomes part of 
kind of the American pop culture scene, right? You know, I mean, Marlon Brando is at the center of American pop culture. Um, Marilyn Monroe is as well, and she is has been trained in the method school by her own kind of crazy acting teacher. Um, James Dean is obviously at the center of this, and, you know, De Niro is still <laughs> kind of churning out movies. Um, and so these next three weeks, as we saw in our previous three weeks, we were looking at the movement from kind of enlightenment ideas into romantic ideas and how those affected um, those three German plays. What we're seeing here is a movement towards realism, um, a movement away from romanticism and a movement towards realism, which will eventually manifest in, in Chekhov, right? And really, we could think of it, will manifest in the, the kind of pop culture icons that we recognize here in America. All right, so that that's the the arc of our last three weeks together, and I'm gonna do a little like I do on Mondays, talk a lot, um, and do a little presentation, and then we'll talk about probably the first act of um, of the play. Okay, so let's get into it. Any questions or comments about that? Let me set up my slides here. Okay. Okay, here we are. And this also brings us to theater in America. And it finally, we finally get to our own country here. Um, theater in America suffered in its initial form from a lot of the same things that theater in during the Puritan period of, of roughly 1842, really 1849 to 1660 did in England. America was in, in you know, especially in Massachusetts and, and those places, um, colonized by these reform Calvinists, by these Puritans who we're not particularly interested in theater, so much not interested in anything kind of pleasurable or performative or decorative that they even canceled Christmas. They, they really, they were no fun Puritans. Um, you had certain uh, counterforces in the Quakers in Pennsylvania um, who were a little more sympathetic, but generally theater suffered from a culture that wasn't particularly interested in it in 17th century America. Very famously, Ye Bear and Ye Cub was the first play performed in America, performed in Virginia. Um, the date there, August 27th, 1665. It was performed by three people in a bar. Um, it had one critic. The critic gave it a bad re review and gave it such a bad review that he called the police and had the actors arrested. The actors were then taken to court and had to perform the play in front of the judge to see if the play was actually so bad that it would lead people astray into immorality and, and so on and so forth. The judge found nothing wrong with it, and then in turn fined the critic for his unjust bad review. It's one of the, the few times in history where the players beat back the critic. And here is um, here's a picture of that the structure built on top of the Folks Tavern, where the, the play was originally performed, um, there's, there's nothing particularly special about this building other than this was the site of where the first play in America was performed. Uh, the play itself, we don't know anything about it. It's lost. It probably was improved by a, a lot of those actors anyway. Um, but this is the inauspicious start of theater in America. Um, one of the first major so theater does occur between you know the, this time here 1665 and the 1750s there's people performing in Williamsburg in Virginia in Pennsylvania and in New York um, however it isn't particularly organized there isn't a lot of note going on there uh, and what we see is the Hallam Company I think it's James Hallam who ran it. Um, he comes over to 
to Yorktown in Virginia in 1755 and staged the first Shakespeare ever mounted in America, uh, The Merchant of Venice, and this is a picture of the the uh, the playbill from that that production. Um, Hallam and Company came from England because of something known as the Licensing Act. The Licensing Act was uh, set in place by Horace Walpole, or uh, England's first prime minister, and um, basically he said, you have to have a license in order to perform straight plays. And what I mean by straight plays is plays without music in it. And two theaters were awarded this for the year, and a third uh, received its license for the summer. And those were the, the Drury Lane Theater and the Covent Garden Theater. The Haymarket was the third. Um, and what ends up happening in, uh, well, I'll keep talking about this, then we'll, we'll go back to America. And what ends up happening because of the Licensing Act in England is that a lot of these other companies start to develop different strategies for dealing with it, including the inclusion of music. Or, in the case of Hallam, running away before they get in trouble and going to America. And so America becomes a site for uh, uh, theater professionals because there isn't a duopoly in America. You, you can open up a, a theater house, I mean, even though Americans traditionally have not been particularly receptive to theater, there is nothing particularly illegal about it either. And what ends up happening is, um, I believe eventually Hallam and his company, they settle down in Philadelphia. And Philadelphia becomes the first real theater capital of America. And this is, you know, in part because you have a lot of, you know, it's it's England still. We're not we're not America, a separate country yet, um, but it is more open to uh, to a number of different theatrical performers. And we could see there's Hallam and his son, or Mrs. Hallam and his son Lewis. So whole family went. Um, interesting thing about the Hallam family, the one of the performers there is the granddaughter of Coley Sibber who was the biggest theater star in London in his day. And he performed from about the 1690s when he was a very young man until uh, the 1740s or 1750s. He was also a very popular playwright. So there is this kind of continuity of tradition from the first American theater back into the traditional British theater um, via this the Sibber line, but that's not really here or there. Anyway, so um, the first theater in America kind of predates this, 1716. Um, first theater in New York was built on Pearl Street, 1735. Here is uh, the, the Murray Keene Company of 1749 was maybe the first touring company. It wasn't it was somewhat successful. Um, here's a picture of their location on Nassau Street. Uh, th this is where, I don't think that's the original building, but this is the site of where that first theater was um, in far downtown Manhattan. So there's a kind of a theme of pictures of buildings that don't matter, but where buildings that used to matter were. That's We could call that the theme of class today. Um, Gen then we get the Revolutionary War. The Revolutionary War, obviously, from the uh, late 1770s until the early 1780s. And you don't have a lot of theater then because um, New York City was the site of the Revolutionary War, uh, and uh, as was Philadelphia, so, you know, there's not a lot of activity. However, after the Revolutionary War, um, New York theater begins to flourish. One of the reasons being the initial capital of America is in New York. Um, this is where George Washington gave his initial inaugural speech when he became president. Uh, and a major theater, the John Street Theater, opened. Here is the modern location. It is a beauty supply store that I have walked past about eight gazillion times without noting that it was the one of the first really big theaters in New York. And this is where the first American musical premiered in 1796, The Archers. Um, this wasn't the first musical to be in America. Um, uh, 
John Gay's The Beggar's Opera was very popular here in the 18th century, but it's the first musical written by an American. Um, and it, it's right in that, that beauty and supply store. Uh, George Washington was a frequent attender of this theater, so that gave it kind of credibility. Okay. Um, the first play written by an American, the first straight play was the 1787's The Contrast by Royal Tyler. Um, it, it's a satire satirizing these kind of Brits who want to act like Americans. Uh, and so, um, yeah, that, that's the story. So first, the first drama, you know, non-musical, um, written by an official American. 1787, you are officially an American. Uh, and it was very American in its theme and in its plot as well. Um, moving on into the 19th century, uh, we start to see a, this is kind of a fun story, so I've included it, but a performance rivalry spark between uh, two major performers, Edwin Forrest and the Brit William Charles McCready. Uh, Forrest was, I think, a New Yorker, um, and he was a tradesman, and one day, while getting high in the street on nitrous oxide, he started reciting Shakespeare. A lawyer with a theater connection walked by and got him a rehearsal. And so the biggest actor of his day got his start in that way. So that's, that's I think, my favorite, you know, discovering a star story is somebody getting high and reciting Shakespeare. Anyway, um, his most famous role was as an American Indian in the play Metamora. These are very popular plays, kind of American Indian plays, um, where people would, you know, dress up as American Indians. And, um, you know, it kind of affirmed a sort of an Americanness, right? Because these are the initial American people. Um, and, you know, the colonists saw themselves as, the, I guess, the inheritor of this land from them. Uh, however, you had the, the British actor... Uh, Charles McCready, he was considered the intellectual actor. Forrest was con considered like the manly actor, uh, you know, very, very masculine, um, very muscular, that whole thing. Um, they both performed Macbeth in England and New York. McCready toured America. Uh, and the performance, McCready's performance of Macbeth sparked a rivalry. And they would... Um, uh, different fans of Forrest and his Macbeth, they would go to wherever MacReady was performing and like boo him and throw things at him. At one point they threw half a sheep carcass at MacReady. Um, I, I don't know how you get half a sheep carcass into a theater, but you know, this, this is the innovative America of the early days. Um, and what ends up happening is McGreedy actually tried to leave America. People convinced him to stay. Um, and at one point he was performing uh, at the Astor Opera House in New York. He was going to do Macbeth. And it was rumored that, you know, a kind of gang of forest fans would, would go in and boo him and, and create havoc. And so police surrounded the building and people started screaming and throwing things at the police and, uh, they started trying to set the building on fire, which they, they were successful at. And the police started just shooting into the crowd and they killed something between 22 and 31 rioters. The building burnt down anyway. Um, McCready got out of there. I think he was hustled out in disguise. Uh, but it became a really sensational story because all of these people were killed. And, and most of them had nothing to do with the riot. They were just, the police were just shooting into a crowd. Um, but that was this rivalry, and it became a very famous story. And there you could see the two of them, right? And, and MacReady was, you know, they were they were very different temperaments. Like MacReady was this like uber masculine guy who wore fake calf muscles because, you know, that was the most important thing back then. Um, and and the MacReady was considered to be this kind of more intellectual British actor. Um, Okay, and so that is kind of the story of the, the beginning of kind of the, the American tradition. And now we'll move a little into to melodrama and how that intersects. So this brings us back to the Licensing Act of 1737. Here's a picture of 
the law written out, you know, um, it's in the reign of, uh, a year in the reign of George II. George II was king at this time. It allowed for two theaters, three in the summer. And so the way people got around the Licensing Act was if your production had music in it, you didn't need to have a licensed theater. So what you would do is you'd have short bits of concert music, then have a production of Richard III, and then have some more concert music after it. Uh, and this allowed theaters to flourish. Now, a lot of these theaters were, they, they, they knew what they were doing, and a lot of these theaters were shut down. But the illegal theater market in, in London was robust. Uh, David Garrick, the most famous actor of the 18th century, possibly the most famous actor ever, um, he came out of the illegal theater scene. He played Richard III in an illegal house. Uh, and the reason why the house got closed down was he was so good in the role and so many people wanted to see it, the authorities couldn't ignore it any longer. Uh, and so that's why we start to get more music incorporated into theater. And so this theater became known sort of as melodrama, mellow meaning music. Um, uh, the plays began to attract larger audiences. You can imagine with a, a duopoly, the ticket prices can be elevated because you don't have a lot of competition. And so these illegal theaters could serve people with lower incomes. And y you start to see... Um, you start to see a an interest in writing things that make the masses happy, and so the these plays are are much more dramatic. They have music underscoring what they're doing, um, and they tend to end on a happy note, right? There, there's sort of this forced happy ending that's going on here. Um, the actual term melodrama is coined by this fellow, and um, Court, I think is how you say his name, but since I've only ever read it before, I'm, I'm just going to, <laughs> I'm just going to take a random guess at it. Uh, he was French, obviously, and uh, he was born into a royal family at the worst time to be born into a royal family in France, slightly before the French Revolution. Um, he manages to initially avoid execution by kind of working in these various jobs in the French Revolution. Um, eventually, he does have to kind of escape and get out of there because he does write an anti-Jacobin play. Uh, the Jacobins were the far-left aspect of the French Revolution. They were, um, they were sort of the guillotine-happy group. Uh, okay, so he later becomes the, the director once things settle down in France, once the revolution ends and we get Napoleon and then later the restoration of the Bourbon monarchs, he becomes the director of the Theatre Royale de l'Opera Comique. Um, and there he begins to write these melodramas, things he calls melodramas, where you have music playing to underscore the emotion of the moment, right? The music is sort of telling you how to feel. You know, the music is very sad when there's a sad scene, very happy when there's a happy scene. There's like a little comic flourish when a clown is on stage. Um, you can recognize this in, in sitcoms, right? Or in, you know, whatever, the kind of network television. They, they do the same thing. And it's coming from this melodramatic tradition. His greatest success was The Dog of Montaigne, um, which comes from a legend about a man who unjustly murders someone and the the dog of the guy ends up fighting a duel with the man in order to get justice. And so there's a lot of like images of a dog dueling a man. Um, in the play version, to, to give um, uh, Pixicot credit, the, the, the dog doesn't have a duel with the man. The dog ends up dying, but the dog kind of discovers evidence that this the, the villain is guilty. Um, but that was hugely popular, and it spawned a subgenre of melodramas called the canine melodrama. And so there's a lot of these canine melodramas where, you know, the dog is the hero um, and does kind of human-like things in order to save the day. Um, I guess the modern version of this is Air Bud. I, I don't know, but, you know, that <laughs> this is where that kind of like uh, the, the animal drama comes from, you know. 
Black Beauty is probably a, a better version of this. Um, yeah, and here is an, I think this is, I want to say, I think this is a British one. This is years later, um, but a Br British bill of sale for the play. Uh, you can see there's a bit, bit of a fight there. Um, this initially was produced at the, uh, the Weimar Court Theater, um, and where Goethe, remember Goethe, right, from the Romantic playwrights, Goethe, Schilling, uh, those people. Um, Goethe was a, a playwright in residence there, and he resigned from the theater when he saw this play. And you could start to see the divide here, just as we saw the divide between the Romantics and the Enlightenment era people. We begin to see a divide here between the, the self-styled melodramatic writers and the romantic writers. The romantic writers had this kind of lofty goal of celebrating the, the, the passions of the individual um, in various kind of experimental ways. And the melodrama was about like a satisfying, you know, time like like filling filling the theater with butts right is what you want and so there's a huge break and a lot of the or, or some of the, the melodrama writers are going to be talking about are actively critical of the romantic era people as being kind of lofty um i think that the term is uh Luftmensch, like uh head in the sky right that's that's kind of what that means like an airy man um and they're not, they're not kind of grounded in the reality of what people want. Uh, here we go. August Friedrich Ferdinand von Kutzebue. And he was another melodramatic, melodramatic writer, uh, but in, in German language. He is also from Weimar, born to a merchant family. Um, he, he wrote critical works and historical works as well. He wasn't just a playwright. Um, his work was translated and spread across the world. His biggest one was The Stranger, which is very popular here in, in America. And he was living in Weimar at the same time as a lot of these romantic playwrights were. And he was actively critical of people like Goethe and, and Schiller and, and, and them. And so his life was not uh, necessarily, as I understand it, particularly comfortable because he was, you know, very critical of the project of the artists in the, you know, kind of in the world he was living in. Um, so there we go. So melodrama develops. Um, uh, Pericourt's plays eventually make their way overseas, becoming popular in England. And this is, this is later, this picture, but this is a, this is Drury Lane. So this is a British theater. Um, I don't know who wrote the whip. I don't know. I, I just liked the picture. So I, I grabbed it, but, um, it is a melodrama scene. Uh, and what you start to see is that a lot of these these melodrama writers start churning, right? They're professional writers, kind of in the same way that we see professional writers in the Renaissance and in, in the Renaissance of Shakespeare and the Jacobin period of Shakespeare, where, you know, we think of playwrights back then like Marlowe and Johnson and Shakespeare and Marsden and, and all these great writers um, but those, they were professionals. They were selling a product and they owned, at least Shakespeare did, owned stock in the theaters that were selling these products. You know, they, it was closer to running a company. Something like that is going on with melodrama in a way that wasn't true of, let's say, the, the, the German romantics that we talked about. And it wasn't really true of uh, the restoration playwrights. It was true of a lot of them. I, I, I shouldn't say that. A lot of them were professionals, but, you know, like Witcherly wrote very few plays. He was a gentleman. Um, but with the melodrama playwrights, they are finding a conventional way of writing and they are ripping these things out. Um, and they're beginning to make a lot of money. And what ends up starting to happen, we're going to talk about this in a second, is uh, the development of copyright, which becomes important which wasn't there in Shakespeare's day. But anyway, so what you begin to see, because these people have to write a lot and develop them a lot, is that certain stock types start to appear. The villain, the sensitive hero, the persecuted heroine, the clown, the faithful friend, the accomplice of the villain. Um, you see all of these with possibly the exception of the clown in, in uh, Under the Gaslight. Um, yeah, and, and so that's... Uh, 
that that's what's going on here. And so these types begin to be repeated, uh, not unlike commedia, where commedia is the, the point of or the the means by which commedia dell'arte performers survived in Italy and in southern France uh, way back in the the 16th century and early 17th century was you performed these kind of improv stuff every night touring from town to town and so you needed stock types because you needed to have a sort of creative foundation upon which you can build however those those comedia plays aren't really scripted nobody's writing them down here they're being written down and they're being transported out from you know france from germany uh they're being translated thrown over to england thrown over to america um Musical instruments, again, melodrama, right? Mellow is music, are played to accompany these uh, th these plays. And usually you'd have an instrument kind of signal a character. So it says here a bass, uh, a bass, but it's like a bassoon, for example, would, would accompany the clown. And people thought bassoons were really funny. And so that kind of thing would, would perform. And the different uh, character types had different instruments that, that sort of signaled them. Um, and and the, this music would then highlight if you were supposed to feel that something was funny, right? The bassoon was like the original laugh track. Um, you know, if something was sad, you'd have sad violins playing, um, you know, that, that type of thing. And they signaled emotion. Music signaled emotion. Um, you could see here, it's, it's true of this play and also apparently of the whip. Um, uh, uh, stressful, precarious situations became popular, like tying people to railroad tracks. Uh, so, you know, very, very sensational types of things. Um, what you see with these melodramas also are that urban characters are featured. These are plays that be, are becoming more and more popular at the same time as the Industrial Revolution is taking off in, in America and especially in England. Um, these plays are performed in cities where a lot of workers who, norm, who formerly were farmers or from farming families are coming in. They're beginning for the first time to have disposable income. Lower class people are, are beginning to have that. And so you want to appeal to these, these lower class people. And so those lower class people become the heroes. And it's the upper class people who are villains or, um, as in Under the Gaslight, they're, like, they're members of society and they kind of suck. They're not necessarily the villain. They're just sort of snooty and the worst. And, and that becomes type of, a type of thing. There's class conflict. Um, as uh, industrial workers become um, receive more money, you start to see the development of middle management in business. Uh, the melodrama follows that, and you start to see domestic melodrama, where you know people can afford to have a home, and, and this stuff takes place you know, in the parlor or, or whatever. Um, what ends up happening then is, uh, before I move on, what happens then is you start to see class conflict. Now, initially this class conflict is probably portrayed in order to attract lower class people, right? This is, this is for the commons, these plays, um, unlike like Wojciech, right? Which was probably, I, who the hell knows who that play was for? This is for people who were, um, who were educated. These audiences don't want particularly literary pieces. They're not literate. They, they can't read a lot of them. So they want something that's fun, that's that's rowdy, that, that's well-made, you know, that, that is, um, that's easy, so to speak. But what comes out of that is a uh, an interest in social conditions, because you have class conflict going on in these plays at the same time that the the intelligentsia as they're stylized are writing about class conflict right and so these things kind of go hand in hand um here's some other types of melodrama just to you know the equestrian melodrama people brought horses on stage um the nautical melodrama you would flood the stage with water and have boats you know go around because that's very exciting and people would want to see that um what ends up happening here, though, with a lot of these sensations, and I'll jump back to this to this picture of the train here, is that as your work is getting more and more sensationalized, you want 
the setting to look more realistic, right? Because you're going to have someone tied to the railroad tracks and the train looks stupid. It's not particularly sensational, right? So like a really cool, really realistic type of scenery, of decoration, of danger, that begins to be highlighted and stressed on stage at the same time that the plays are becoming more and more realistic, uh, more and more um, uh, ridiculous, right? And I I say ridiculous in the kindest of ways, um, you know, ridiculous in the way like Marvel movies are ridiculous, right? And Marvel movies are in part sponsored by um, improved special effects, which can make out-of-world stuff appear more real. Um, you know, I think Marvel movies are a lot easier to watch than, let's say, uh, Star Wars Episode Two, where the, the special effects are, are aren't there yet. Um, they're kind of there when we get to the Avengers movies. And that's the same type of thing here. It's the unrealistic plots that end up sponsoring realistic sets, dangers, things like that. And realism becomes important. And that that thing, that idea, realism gets transferred over out of the, the popular culture, the sensational culture, into the avant-garde, where people are interested in not just realistic looks of, of the set stage, lighting, etc., but realistic performances, realistic plots, you know, real human interaction on stage. Um, so much so that it becomes kind of almost a religion. Um, anyway, and so we get that with kind of sensational stuff like real horses on stage, um, real boats on stage. And then we get to this guy, Dionysus Bukikolt, I think you say his name. I'll just call him Dionysus to make my life easier. Uh, and he is really beginning to stress the melodrama should be taking on a social issue. Right. You know, social problem plays. Um, yeah. And not only that, so he does two major things, right? So he, he's moving social issues into his plays. They're there already, but he's highlighting them. The other thing is he starts franchising his plays. And so um, there isn't much of a international copyright law in effect at this time when he's starting there is copyright rules that begin to be written in the first decade of the 18th century. I want to say 1708, I think you start to see the first copyright law. Um, it's called the Eighth of Anne, the Eighth Ruling of Queen Anne. Um, but that gives copyrights to publishers and printers more than authors. Our good friend Dionysus here, he begins to franchise his work, sell translations and whatnot, sue people who aren't paying him, and this over time kind of inspires or is part of the inspiration for the International Copyright Agreement of 1866, which gives kind of international copyright to authors. And this becomes important because unlike Shakespeare, who didn't have any kind of right over his words and had to kind of either produce a lot of plays or you had to buy stock in a company, now writers can be kind of um, become wealthy as I guess what you would call independent contractors. Um, and this becomes really popular for our man, Augustine Daly, who is, I want to say he's originally from Virginia and then comes up to New York to do his, his playwriting. He's very successful. He writes a lot of plays. Um, he makes a lot of money because he holds rights over these plays. And this, you know, the, the international copyright law, that, that kind of allows a lot of playwrights, a lot of power. And um, he ran the theater also. He was um, pretty autocratic. If you messed up a line, he fined you. If you were late, he fined you. Uh, he, was, he was really into fining his actors. Um, but he also increased the realism of the plays by plays mounting in New York he would write in real locations. So, for example, in Under the Gaslight, when we looked at, I think it's Pier 20, was a real pier, right? That was a real place, and it was, when this play premiered, designed to look like that real place. Um, and his plays are filled with actual locations, honest locations, um, 
in order to highlight the realism of it. We also see in Under the Gaslight his other debt to um, Dionysus, our, our earlier friend, the social issues, the the idea of dealing with class and with Daly's play. This play, you're also dealing with, with issues of race. Um, those are big parts of, of this play. Uh, and so that's where we are in this kind of post-Civil War America. Um, the melodrama reigns. So let's get out of this. And good, good, good. So we haven't a ton of time left, but let's talk about Under the Gaslight. So what are some... Um, what are some impressions people had? Sorry, Rachel, I don't know what you're you're responding to. And you said that's absolutely incredible. Uh, I didn't see it until just now. Dog duel. Oh, the dog duel. Yeah, no, that that's 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 incredible. Yeah, yeah, that was that was like a really big thing, and lots of lots of writers made their bread and butter with dog duels, but and anyway, <laughs> um, getting, getting I'm really into disappointed that we don't see this as much today, honestly, more dog dueling. Yeah. I mean, you, there, there's, you know, it's like you say something like black beauty, right? Where it's not ridiculous. I mean, black beauty couldn't, I don't think it could really happen, but it's a, you know, it's a movie about a horse and it's, it's an animal film. It's about the, you know, about it's centered on this animal, um, babe, the pig in the city, right? these things it sounds it sounds crazy like us but we can find works like this that are you know that in 150 years people might think of as as equally silly uh, i don't know this oh, uh, it's how I, it's how i live my life so like i, I don't know i believe it <laughs> yeah. you you duel dogs chuck is that oh no 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 i just you know you, you just walk around the city you see it every day you know yeah oh yeah you don't partake yeah, but you know the, the lower oh, orders no, 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 yeah. no, no. I, i'm not like that yeah what were we gonna say kimberly oh just the, a long journey home like the homeward bound yeah film. Mm-hmm. yeah um and and those kind of things that we're talking about you know the the i don't know how well black beauty did but you know babe and homeward da- bound were I think big hits, they made a lot of, you know, they made a lot of money, but those are drawing and coming from the, the melodramatic tradition. But we, wow, I talked a lot today. Um, with, well, let's talk about Under the Gaslight. So let's recount a little bit of what we now know about melodrama, at least in the first act. So in terms of um, character types, right? We talked about melodrama as having character types. How do you see that occurring in this play, at least in the first act? Um, well, you kind of have, I think her name is Laura or Lauren, mm-hmm. um, Laura. who is kind of like like the perfect lady of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it comes out that she's actually like the daughter of thieves and, mm-hmm. you know, it's a whole big drama. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So we do have the virtuous heroine, right? She's super virtuous. She she will do. She will suffer beautifully, do everything right. Um, but we need a happy ending because it's melodrama. So in the end, it turns out she isn't actually who they thought she was, and she can marry the the rich guy who abandons her. Um, every woman's dream. Uh, anyway, um, so we have that. What other kind of types do we see? Uh, there's her cousin. Mm-hmm. I'm blanking on her name. Yeah, her cousin, uh, uh, Pearl. Yeah, Pearl. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she, I feel like, is a little bit conniving mm-hmm. in a way with like she's the one that tells the guy that um, Laura or Lauren, whatever her name is, um, mm-hmm. Laura. that you know, she's the child of a thief mm-hmm. and not like the perfect aristocrat that they thought she was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So she's uh, she's not great. <laughs> Good. Um, and also in this, we are introduced to the the helpful friend and the evil person. So who is who's the helpful friend? 
Who's that, Ray? No, Ray's the rich guy. Ray is um, Ray is our our venue into social commentary. Right, he's the he's the husband he's the potential husband, the suitor who decides he's not going to marry her because of you know society won't like it. Do you remember who the uh, who the, the person Martin. who become? I'm sorry, Martin. Not Martin, really. It was a uh, Snorky. Yeah, I was, I was about oh. to say, Brianna, put that in the uh, chat. Oh, there. Oh, I'm sorry, Brianna. <laughs> I'm not great with the chat today. Um, yeah, it's Snorky. And so let's say, what's Snorky's story? And then I'll let you go because I, I talk too much today. Um, so what's Snorky's story? Well, if you say what Snorky's story is, like who he is, then you can leave. So Snorky is a messenger um, and he also is a, a civil war survivor, right? And, and what is the, how do we know that he's a civil war survivor? What is, what about him is, demonstrates that? Yep, exactly. I was going to say that. Yeah, he has one arm. So that's our helpful friend, Snorky, who is who is there to help out our heroine, Laura. Um, good. And so we'll talk about more about this on, on Wednesday. Uh, we are over time, so I'll let you go. And uh, I will stay on this chat for office hours if, if anybody needs to talk to me. Otherwise, thank you very much.